0: Hi, thanks for listening. John here. Just a warning. This episode discusses suicide and issues around mental health that may be distressing. If you're struggling, and it can happen to anyone, please reach out for help. Okay, so the first question is, what do you think makes a good man? This is John, talking to some of his schoolboy rugby team. Yeah, it's not exactly scientific, but I wanted to get a feel from these guys They're 16, 17, just on the edge of becoming men themselves. After practice one day, I asked them to take a moment to write down a few words about what they think makes a good man.
1: Humility and caring. By having a good balance in your lifestyle.
0: Provide support, leader, and loyalty. Loyal, mature, and honest. Okay, nice, very good, thank you. Now, if I'm going to ask you to think about what you would write if I asked you to man up. If you were going to be a real man. Hard and has no feelings.
1: Stepping forward and leading. Tough, staunch and fearless. Staunch and not much humour. That's quite a range, although leading comes up in both.
0: Yeah, I guess there's a lot of emphasis on leading in teams. They're all valid though, aren't they? And you get the feeling... Being a real man comes with some weight attached.
1: But it sounds hard to be both, doesn't it? You're going to struggle to be caring and also hard with no feelings.
0: Then I asked them if they had any thoughts about masculinity in general. I was putting them on the spot slightly and a couple of them didn't want to say anything but...
1: Being a man has a false uh, surrounding around it like you have to be this staunch man when really everyone has feelings I guess that all men have emotions, like you can show your emotion if you want to, and you can talk to other people. Just don't, like, you don't have to hold it in. There's definitely tension there. They're coming to terms with these expectations around feelings and emotions that we all grapple with, and it isn't easy. Yeah, I think
0: that's really good, actually. It's great that they're even thinking about emotions and that they can identify that tension. It's a long time ago, but from memory at that age, in that environment, I just thought of emotions as being unhelpful. That's
1: kind of sad, isn't it? Learning to cope with emotions, particularly the big ones, the taxing ones, that's something I'm still learning, but you can't get away from them.
0: No, the bloody things keep popping up. Anyway, I haven't done a lot of coaching, and when I turned up last year to help out, one of the first things the head coach said to me was that these kids are under a lot of pressure, and we need to connect with them. And I was like, I don't remember that being a thing when I was playing schoolboy rugby.
1: But you were saying there's a reason for that.
0: I think he would have said it anyway. There's just this growing consciousness that teenagers are under a lot of pressure. But yeah, in the last 18 months, two young guys, 118, 120, who used to play for this team, have died. One of them by suicide, one of them by suspected suicide. Right. And look, I didn't know them, but I mean, bloody hell, you know?
1: Yeah, this is important. It's close to home, but I think these issues, how to help others, how to deal with your emotions, and why so many Kiwi men are dying from suicide, this touches everyone.
0: Last year, 654 people died by suicide in New Zealand. 471 of them were men. Over the last decade or so, men have been killing themselves at nearly three times the rate of women.
2: It's a fragile...
0: This is He'll Be Right, a six-part podcast series from Stuff and Bird of Paradise about how to be a modern man. I'm John Daniel.
1: And I'm Glenn McConnell. In this episode, we're going to be talking about some of the hard stuff. Mental health, suicide and extremism.
0: Yeah, and rugby. So look, this is episode four. We're halfway through this series already and it feels like what you said at the very start of this, Glenn, on that first day sitting in the car about how there are lots of different ways to be a man. It feels like that's pretty obvious now.
1: We've spoken with lots of people who have struggled in one way or another. Carl and Rob with their bodies, Ben talking about breaking the cycle of violence around his own behaviour, Scout with their identity, but they've all managed to come through these tough times. And some men, sadly, don't make it.
0: It's very hard to talk about suicide. I guess that what we've seen is that there are so many different ways of being a man, and that's great. But the problems come when what you think is the right way to be, the ideal way that you decide to be a man, and very often that's influenced by the world around you. When the way you are, or at least the way your life is going, when that doesn't line up with how you think it should be.
1: When you're not living up to what it feels like you're supposed to be.
0: Yeah, and I guess this may be the same thing for women, and I don't want to minimise the pressures that society brings to bear on them. But I think sometimes men in particular get the impression that they are loved based on what they can achieve. And if you can't achieve highly enough, you're not worthy of being loved. And that is not good, but I see how it works.
1: I've avoided saying it until now, but this is part of toxic masculinity, right? We're talking about demands for stoic men, who then place all their focus
0: and worth on achievements, like work, sport or school. There are definitely elements of male culture that aren't healthy, but toxic masculinity feels like a catch-all phrase that's deployed as a weapon too broadly against a certain way of being a man. And I'm not sure that's helpful. Anyway, I wanted to know more about these young men who used to play for the team I coach now. So I caught up with our old coach, Jonathan Tanner, A guy I know, who I think everyone knows, is JT.
1: Rugby players love an inventive nickname.
0: Yeah, I was known as JD. We used to play together and against each other in Wellington in the 1990s. These days he's a husband, father and lawyer, and he now coaches a different schoolboy team, along with a club team and reps. It's pretty obvious he loves coaching and inevitably he's involved with some of the things that happen off the field. Recently, there was another suspected suicide that affected some of the kids he coaches now. I wondered, what do you say to kids in that kind of situation? I just sort of asked how they were and
3: how they felt about things and what they knew. And actually, to be honest, because everyone tries to protect them, they didn't know too much, which I'm, I'm, I'm not personally sure that's a good thing. So what,
0: what kinds of things were they saying?
3: They were just talking about, you know, dumb, what a waste, things like that. And uh, yeah, we didn't get deep and meaningful about why or, or what because I think they all accept that people
0: have lots of bad things happening in their lives. How fundamentally different is the environment that kids live in today compared to say 30 years ago when we were at school? they utterly different and utterly the same. So being cool
3: hasn't changed. Making mistakes and being persecuted for them very different because it doesn't stop. So. You know, we had a, you hassled me when we were at school and you didn't hassle me again until I saw you the next day. Now you hassle me at school, you hassle me that afternoon on Facebook, you hassle me that evening, you bring another 150 people into our hassling and it becomes this quite big thing that everyone knows about. That's the change. Like it or not, that's the thing that I see. And again, you know, if you made a dick of yourself in a rugby game, no one saw it. Now it's posted on the internet. You do something good, it's posted on the internet. You do something stupid, it's posted on the internet.
0: Mm. That's probably the the biggest change. And then JT reminds me of a guy we both played with thirty years ago. Do you remember? A boy played for
3: under twenty ones. So might have been just before your time. You know, amazing rugby player. Everyone loved him. Cookie.
0: Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Loved him. About. Yeah. 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 Good dude. It mightn't sound like it, but I'm reeling. Of course I remember Cookie. I don't know why he was called that, a slightly more inventive nickname than the usual. He was the hooker. I was a line-out jumper, so we used to train together, just the two of us in the old days before lifting, after practice when we were 19 or 20, for hours. He was a year or so older than me, more experienced, and I looked up to him. He was Samoan. I think it's fair to say he had a lot of mana. He was well-built, a natural leader, the kind of guy people listen to. I kept the order of service from his funeral on the wall above my desk for years. The photo his parents must have chosen to go on the front, had him in his rugby tracksuit, the way I picture him now. We milled about after the funeral, trying to work out what had happened. Someone said he'd paid off all his debts. I remember wondering what that had to do with it, but I guess he thought he was clearing up, leaving a clean slate. He'd be 50 now, would have had a family of his own. Here we are two of his old teammates, 30 years on, discussing young men killing themselves and trying to get a handle on it. We talk about resilience and mental toughness, about drugs and parenting, about mental health awareness and violence, peer pressure and shame, but we don't come up with any solutions. JT says there are no obvious links in the cases he knows of, no particular thing he can pinpoint to say where anything went wrong. Eventually we go back to talking about coaching, and he tells me a story about the parents of a kid who came up and thanked him. He says it was the greatest compliment he ever got, but it had an edge to it. They came to me and said, i just like to thank you very
3: so much because his confidence has improved so much because you've taken an interest in him. And it hurts because you think, what about all the kids that I haven't done that for? But man, if that's all, if that all a kid takes, I would go back to it and say, most kids I've ever coached just want some praise. And that's probably about it. And I think a lot of good families don't praise or show that real affection and caring for their kids enough. I don't know, but it feels like he's onto something here. You know, my kids, i got excellence, right? How many more do you need to, you know, achieve excellence for this year? That's the first question I always ask. Not, oh, that's amazing, well done. I'm so proud of you. It's right. What are you, how much, how many more do you need? Goal setting. That? You're yeah. sort of, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're, a terrible you're, parent.
0: I don't think for a second that he's a terrible parent. Far from it. I don't think he does either. Although, it's often complicated between fathers and sons. And look, life can be tough. A certain level of competition is a healthy preparation for that, and many young men thrive on it. And it feels like helping to set their expectations high, to push them to achieve their potential. Still, kids, all of us, need to know that life gives us a brick in the face from time to time. And that's okay. I think perspective is,
3: my wife and I talk about all the time, Uh, All that lack of life experience. So you get rejected, you've never been rejected before. And we say to them, hey, it's going to happen for, uh, you know, it it happens and it's just part of of life and growing up.
0: We all need to learn how to lose. Any competitive sport is good at teaching that. But the drive for excellence can be double-edged. And it's bred into many of us men as part of our identity in a world that constantly nudges us towards the importance of success. This is where I think it can get toxic. That vision of yourself that you feel you have to live up to. When I stopped playing professionally, my self-esteem fell off a cliff. I was in my mid-thirties, so not exactly a young man. But I really struggled to find a way to fit into the world that wasn't supported by a team culture and the money that went with it. And I had some mental health issues around that. More than one of my old teammates had the same, some worse than others. A kind of drift into self-loathing that played out pretty badly. Risk-taking behaviour, drink, depression, suicide attempts.
1: So, rugby, not actually that healthy?
0: I think it's oversimplifying it. Life gives you some things and it takes some away. Relationship breakups can be gutting, but I don't think that means we shouldn't get into relationships. But I guess you're right in the sense that I had got quite wrapped up in the identity of being someone strong and successful. And so when I look back on that period, what really stands out for me is that, broadly, I felt unable to talk to people around me, to reach out and connect when I was in trouble, because it would have felt like an admission of failure, of weakness. I was lucky to have a really good friend who had been through some of that stuff himself. And we talked to each other across the world. He was in New Zealand, I was still in France. And that really helped me through.
1: What about rugby itself? Does the culture around the game have something to answer for?
0: Perhaps. It has a history of self-selecting and amplifying a particular kind of gruff masculinity that sometimes goes over the top. But I think there are changes there. And almost any group tends to have a culture where there's something you can point to and criticise. And rugby like any sport I guess, offers this really great opportunity in a structured environment for men to connect with boys and try to relate to them and pass on some knowledge and it can work really well for everyone. It's surprisingly rewarding to be a coach, whether you're showing them how to run a short line out or something bigger. Here's JT talking about another of the kids he coaches. And this kid who's
3: bigger than me, solid kid, comes from a tough background, he said, I hate fighting JT, I just don't want to hurt anyone. Now, out on the field, he's an absolute mongrel. But, and, and I thought it was, it, was just, it was a really, really pleasant, refreshing conversation to have with a kid. And I said, like, I was just an angry little dude. And I said, I wasn't fighting because I, you know, you look back now and you realise I haven't had a fight since I left school. But, you know, at school I was just always in trouble. And it's quite good to be able to talk about your own circumstances. And yeah, but it was just bloody refreshing. This kid could easily... If you looked at his environment it would not be hard for him to go wrong, but he desperately doesn't want to go wrong and that's why we're all helping because he he wants to do it right so he's not going to be able to do that on his own.
1: That sense of a team where younger people work together and get helped by adults, that chimes with the story of Ezekiel Raui, a young man who put together a mental health programme as a teenager after a spate of suicides in 2012. Me and my mates,
4: uh, we were all at school, and then the Northland, the High North community, and even though it's geographically spread, or we, we feel like it's geographically spread, everyone knew everyone. Um, and the small kind of pocket communities that we have up there. And then one of our mates took their lives and for us, we realized at the time that a lot of our peers uh, because of has shockwaves obviously through our community. A lot of our peers were more comfortable with talking to each other and were talking to each other as opposed to the services available, the school counselling, the teachers and to an extreme extent their parents. And the biggest challenge we saw with that was that that left a heavy burden on the young people whose peers were approaching them to offload to them. And so the Tūkotain programme is a peer support programme for us that we came up with that we wanted to be able to sit there and support our peers but at the same time understanding we didn't have the right tools to be able to support them um, beyond being someone, uh, a shoulder to cry on or someone for them to go to. And so it aims
1: to bridge the gap between young people and the services
4: in their communities.
1: Getting those young people in touch with adults who can help relies on trust. But while he's clear that professionals are shouldering the load as best they can, Zeke says that the system needs to be able to help more people or the problems will get worse. We need to meet the demand, because if we're opening these cans of worms and we're uh, pipelining these young people to services, then they need to have their
4: services met. Otherwise, their trust in us and our services, uh, and the services that we have available, is going to diminish um, just as much, unfortunately, as, I guess, their hope or their self-esteem.
0: Unfortunately, in at least some parts of New Zealand, there are real issues around the time lag between people asking for help and actually getting it. At home, Zeke's own parents' attitudes helped when he was growing up in an environment that sometimes set low expectations for his peer group.
4: I remember getting off the school bus one day and two of my mates, who I now consider my brothers actually, um, they were always late to form time and I remember asking them one day why and they said well because during form time obviously all the students all the teachers are in the one place it's the easiest time to sell drugs and alcohol at school and we were like we were only 12 13 at the time and so that just absolutely blew my mind and I asked them why um, and they said because you know uh, that's for us that's what it means to be Maori this whole stereotype of not being able to achieve Maori or Pacifica not being able to achieve and for me growing up in a family that you know, if I said one day that I wanted to be a lawyer, or I said that I wanted to be a judge or a business owner, there was always the support um, from my parents, even though I come to realize now that, you know, they, even they are, are still trying to find themselves in terms of believing in their dreams and, and just going for whatever they have aspired to be. And um, they managed to do a really good job of instilling that in me, which is why I think I always look, I try to look at things through uh, a scope or through a lens of optimism and look at the possibilities as opposed to what isn't there.
1: But while optimism is great, Zeke is wary of a culture that amplifies success and normalises perfection, from body image to careers.
4: We don't normalise imperfection enough. It's a conversation that isn't had in the home, and as a result of that... When you're growing up as a young person, you're constantly looking for how do I become, maybe you like to be your parents, how do I become my parents not knowing that actually your parents went through some rough times themselves regardless of what that was through.
0: So there's a balance here in terms of recognising life's inevitable difficulties that will come alongside opportunities.
4: And I think if we shy away from normalising imperfections and normalising pressures, then our young people don't learn to have the conversation about things that are going to affect them if they're continuously sheltered from them, if that
1: makes sense. Zeke says rugby was never his thing, but while the culture around it might have issues, it also offers ways of connecting.
4: I was down in the South Island recently. And there's a massive conversation about toxic masculinity, for example. And it was all because, you know, rugby teams and the whole idea of take a concrete pool and harden up. I think there are some things in the fabric of rugby or the idea of rugby that can change. And if we can have the conversation with our lads using rugby, then that, I think, would make it all the more easier
1: to, to kind of break the ice. Of course, one size doesn't fit all. He says it's very different talking to a rugby team rather than a kapa haka group or a creative arts room. And too often that diversity isn't recognised.
4: I don't think there's been a conversation that has been influenced by young people from all backgrounds. I don't think there's been a solid conversation with policy makers around how young people feel would be the best way to have a conversation with them. And I don't, to me personally, I don't like the idea of finding or building an approach or building a framework and trying to blanket that across the entirety of New Zealand. I think you lose the genuine ability to build positive relationships amongst our young people and with young people when you start to set one approach and say that that's the way that everything needs to be done.
0: Still, Zeke sees one generalisation that holds true.
4: When our our men are finding themselves in services or when they've sought support, being able to open up is almost kind of like learning how to to talk um, situation and not in a negative way, but a lot of our men tend to be so out of touch with their emotional side um, that the ability to say, actually, I had a really bad day can be a week long, a couple of weeks long, a month long process just to begin the conversation, let alone trying to keep them there in the first place.
0: Men struggling to process their feelings about their place in the world can also take off in another direction, one that focuses out rather than in, not so much self-destructive as hating the society that they feel has left them on the outside.
1: This isn't so much about mental health, it's men who are angry but blame others rather than themselves.
0: Professor Paul Spoonley of Massey University has studied right-wing extremism in New Zealand since the 1980s. We asked him why it seems to be such a male thing.
2: I think there are two reasons. One is the, the culture of extremism itself, which has always been very misogynistic, very homophobic. So it's a very male type of culture that venerates maleness and it very often venerates aggression. And then of course it's what's happening to young white males in many countries, particularly in working class communities, who are feeling very threatened by what's happening. You know, this is about space and place. It's about defending your territory. It's about reaffirming your whiteness in the face of growing diversity and the fact that you feel as though somehow you're being
1: marginalized and ignored. Paul Spoonley's study of the far-right brought him into contact with a man who was radicalised in the early 1980s and who continues to post far-right conspiracy theories online today, although Paul says he's outwardly mellowed with age and after fathering a child.
2: When I began to talk to him in depth, his explanation of the world around him was as extensive and as carefully thought through as mine was. So the view that somehow these are knuckleheads who are entering this sort of manosphere, this this toxic masculinity of the far right, without any thought, I think is misplaced. I think these people develop an explanation for the world and what they want to see it become.
1: Over the years, the academic and the
2: former skinhead have kept in touch. I haven't seen him recently, but when we do get together, he's very clear in terms of the different values that he and I have. And he will say, "Well, you won and I lost. You know, your 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 mob never know who the mob is, but your mob. You know, you control the media, you control the parliament, you you you, you control our economy. So I'm I'm where I was in 1982 when I first met you. I'm just as disenfranchised, just as disempowered, to use our words."
0: Now, I really like Paul Spoonley. I think he's very smart and definitely one of the good guys, and full disclosure, he funded our first podcast series on immigration a few years ago. Strictly speaking it was Messy University, but basically it was him. But I think he's got a blind spot here when he talks about not knowing who the mob who controls things is. It's easy to do in the sense that if you get to the top of the pile, it's natural to think of the environment and the structures in society that allowed you to do that as just being normal. You don't see all that because it's just like the air that you breathe. Uh
1: Uh-oh, is this where you start ranting about elites?
0: Yeah, and the mainstream media. Look, I didn't pull him up on it at the time because it didn't really occur to me, but thinking back on it, we were talking in the dining area of a very fancy hotel just up the road from Parliament in Wellington. It was full of well-connected people meeting each other, people from government, the top end of business, that kind of thing. People who, one way or another, are steering the country. People like him and to a much lesser extent, me. University educated, middle class, people who have a stake in the system and access to power. Elites. Well, you're part of this too. Great, but I'm not sure I actually qualify. Young, Māori, uncertain
1: career prospects, renting...
0: With a fortnightly column on New Zealand's most visited media website. You have a platform that helps you to shape the way people think. Anyway, whether or not you qualify as part of the mob running things, and I think you should check your key-sheeting privilege here, Glenn, I can see how Paul Spoonie does. So, where are you going with this? It kind of goes back to what Zeke was saying. Just like young people aren't all the same, people aren't all the same. I think if you run a top-down, broad-brush approach that tells everyone the right way to be, that ends up excluding people who don't agree, and you're not going to connect with them. You're going to alienate them, and you run the risk of splintering society. Right.
1: So is this a free speech debate? The far right should get to say what they think, Because
0: free speech is a thing. Not exactly. It's more like society is increasingly divided into winners and losers. And as we've narrowed our version of what success looks like, basically money and education, the people at the bottom feel left out and judged. And if the winners don't acknowledge the fact that they tend to promote their own views and their own people in front of the also-rans, then you're going to piss some people off. And it holds across the political spectrum. I mean, while we're not America, Black Lives Matter has real resonance here because Māori have been getting screwed by the system since 1840.
1: Yeah, homeowners versus renters works too.
2: At the core of it for me is the the fact that you are no longer able to get a job, a job that pays reasonably well, a job that gives you not only security but sort of confidence in who you are. And and I don't think it's any accident that that we then see the strong power bases for these groups of extremists in impoverished working-class communities, white working-class communities. I think that if you're looking for an explanation, I would always point to that to say, well, that is a prime cause for the feeling of disengagement, of being disenfranchised, of being unsure about
1: what you can contribute because you simply don't have an economic base. So, poor white men need better-paid jobs, otherwise they're going to come for society.
0: I didn't say I had a workable solution, but this kind of disillusionment exists, and we're better off recognising it rather than ignoring it because we don't like their views. And while the extremists are out on the edge, there's quite a big chunk of society that is potentially fertile ground for them.
2: There's a significant group or communities in New Zealand who still believe that what we're doing is going to hell in a handbasket and that women have too much influence, that we are too respectful of ethnic and religious minorities, that we should go back to the rugby that was Colin Meads or whoever. And those were the days in which we had a clear set of values, in which we knew our place now in the world, and this is gendered, but also ethnic in terms of Māori as well. And and so there is a a degree of nostalgia, a degree of wanting to go back. Because this is a a diverse, messy world that we're in, and of course some people are going to feel very uncomfortable.
0: A lot of those very uncomfortable people are men. But even the increasing traction of conspiracy theories, anti-vaxxing, that kind of thing, there's a breach in socially accepted norms across all kinds of people, sometimes fuelled by opportunistic politicians, and that has to be a concern. One of the groups that came up with Paul Spooning was called Action Zealandia.
1: Yeah, they've put up some posters and stickers around the campus at Auckland Uni. They don't last very long.
0: Right. Without doing a very deep dive on this stuff, it feels like they're pretty fringe. I took a look at their website, listened to some of their podcasts. From what I can see, they're getting like 200 listens. Hopefully we'll do better than that, if we're going to influence the masses. But they're on YouTube, so doing that mess with my YouTube algorithm, and suddenly I was getting a lot of videos like Jordan Peterson recommended, which I hadn't planned on. But the number of people who viewed some of those was in the millions.
1: That's how they get you. Start off with a mild dose of Jordan Peterson, and then the suggestions get more and more extreme. It's pretty much how the internet works. Here's Paul Spoonley again.
2: When you look at the Action Zelandia website, at first glance it appears to be a group that's very keen on fitness, very keen on looking after the environment, and you're thinking, well, what, what's, what's the issue here? And then you get on to the fact that you can't be female and join... Okay, so that starts to get interesting. And then, of course, you get on to what are we about? Well, we're about preserving white civilization against the hordes. And those hordes might be Muslims, they might be the media, they might be people who are undermining white uh, Western civilization. And so you get into a very different sort of mindset as you begin to get further into the group. And then, of course, things like the Great Replacement, the belief that came out of France that the White West was under attack and it was going to be replaced demographically, politically, culturally. And so now you're getting into alt-right, far-right ideology very, very clearly. So there's a veneer which seems quite reasonable, but underneath it, no, there's something very, very different and I think much more sinister.
0: We've already had evidence of just how sinister that kind of thinking can be, how it fueled the actions of a loner connecting to others on the internet. We'd like to think what happened in Christchurch was just one mad man, but there are indications he was the tip of an iceberg.
2: One of the things about the toxic masculinity, it gives you permission to hate. It's not that you don't like or that you're suspicious of or you're sceptical of, It allows you to hate particular groups. And that's, I think, one of the things that most concerns me and therefore one of the reasons why I would call it toxic.
0: If that's how we're defining toxic masculinity, as a way of justifying hate because you refuse to tolerate people who are different from you, then it's important to recognise that. And of course I'm against it. But again, how helpful is that kind of labelling? My instinct is that the men who you're pointing at are likely to double down rather than back off.
1: I think part of the point is that it makes the problem wider than just any one man. If it's systemic, you can identify it and help people to move away from it.
0: But if those people, those men, don't accept your legitimacy because your value system is very different to theirs... Do you really think they want your help?
1: That's how society changes, isn't it? When you get big enough shifts in public awareness of issues, things can get better over time. You were saying just in the last episode how fast we moved from homophobia being part of the law of the land to within a couple of decades having pretty much everyone finding gay marriage normal.
0: Yeah, well, fingers crossed. Next episode, you're taking us to Te Ao Māori. It offers us a very different worldview and a different version of success. From the outside, it looks like it's much more about people and the connections between them than individual achievements and money. At the risk of Jordan Peterson thinking I'm a cultural Marxist, I quite like the sound of it. Here we be right as a stuff in Bird of Paradise production. It was written and produced by me, John Daniel, and Glenn McConnell. Associate producer was Noel McCarthy. Editing and sound design by Andre Upston. And music by Anthony Tonin.
1: Carol Hirschfeld is the commissioning editor for Stuff, and Patrick Crudson was the executive producer. This series was made possible by funding from New Zealand On Air. If this episode has brought up any questions or concerns, we have information and resources for seeking help on our website, stuff.co.nz, forward slash he'll be right that's h-e-l-l without the apostrophe be right that's also the place to go to listen to other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app